worshipped. This is by no means easy. It is difficult in the beginning because nature is constantly rushing upward. In human beings, there is a possibility and a tendency take an inner stand sometimes in life. Usually it is through the stress of circumstances that we tend to reflect or enter into some kind of a self-observation or engage ourselves with something deeper than our surface personality. Yet the natural tendency in the natural man in which all of us are is to gaze outward and to be engaged with outer life on life's surfaces. That's how she puts a beautiful expression. And yoga requires an inward shift. So in the beginning, to our nature, it is difficult because we are tied to the surfaces of life through almost everything. And this becomes like a veil which prevents us from going with you. In one of our prayers, Mother beautifully describes this way, which prevents going within and seeking union with the Divine. And she speaks of this way being formed by so many attachments and preferences, which prevent us from taking any one plunge. If you really take a look at many of the yogi processes, many of them help us to get rid of these strings which tie us to the surface. Equanimity, for instance, it helps us get rid of many of these attachments which spring up from physical, vital and mental nature. There is a true story of three men who wanted to have a party on the other side of the viewer. And they took a boatman and went to the other side and the boatman took them ashore. They said, well, if you go, don't worry, we want to just enjoy for some time and then we will get back. He said, but I can't fly the boat so late at night. He said, no, don't worry, we are three of us, you are only one. Three of us can easily go into the other side. So he went away. These people had a good time and as the night began to deeper, they realized that in the morning they must reach the other side. So they sat in the boat and began to row. They rowed and rowed and rowed and felt tired and the other shore would come. Finally they were very tired and they fell asleep, not knowing what to do. In the morning when the boatman came, he saw they are still there, half drowsy, half sleepy, half tired, and he asked them what happened. He said, we don't know how night we were going, but we didn't. Just go get to the other side. So the boatman told him, told them, fools, you should have at least untied the boat. <laughs> so many times we don't realize because we don't see any outer strings that are the problem. It's not something physical, that's all the same there. And we are tied to the surface of life through the senses, through the desire, through preferences, through opinions, through various kinds of things. We are tied to the surface, physical habits. And that's why it 
equanimity goes a long way to prepare the being for an inner turn. And even while we are on surface, sometimes some light can break through, that is grace. But it's one thing to live on the surface and receive some light, and it's quite another to take an inward plunge. So it's difficult to begin with. It's difficult later, even as the yoga grows deeper. The second line of difficulty starts because our being is no more our small ego self. And as we enter into the territory of the inner being, the boundaries begin to become blurred between self and not self. All that is around us begins to flow into us, and all that is within us begins to flow around us. And as this process grows, this interchange creates a second level of difficulty in the inward plunge, and we are surrounded all the time with everything in life that prevents us from going within. And the mother spoke of this aspect of collective yoga, when people asked her, Mother, why is the general atmosphere in the ashram come down? She says, actually the general atmosphere has not come down. But individually you feel that there has been a kind of a glory. And then she explains the phenomenon very beautifully. She says, earlier, all of you were individuals and I held you as little chicks inside the egg. But after a time, this is of course in 58 she is telling us, after a time, the moment came for the collective yoga. So now everybody has become one with everybody else. So each one as he advances helps everybody else to advance and each one as he goes down helps everybody to sink the boat. <laughs> so each becomes the space and self of power. This happens and for this very purpose he created a collectivity both in the ashram as well as in Norway. So that instead of, uh, there are many reasons, one of them was this, that the collectivity itself could help the individual to advance and not become a big block on the way. This is the second level of problem that one has to tackle with as one takes an inward plan because the first thing is the little shell of the ego begins to open wider and it becomes porous on many sides and we enter into the cosmic consciousness and the collective and the individual begin to flow into each other. The third level of difficulty comes when we take the inward plunge and that comes from cosmic forces which deny the yoga, which do not want the yoga, which are not only harmful and detrimental but hostile to the yoga. And these forces act in various ways they masquerade as divine forces, they masquerade in many ways, they threaten, they feel fear, they feel doubt, distrust, depression, anguish. They fill the mind with the impossibility of doing yoga, going back to ordinary life. Sri Buddha has given in such detail the various suggestions that they make. For instance, one of the standard strategies, as he says, is to tell, whisper into the ear of the sadhak, this is not for you. Go back and lead down to life. She is careful of these sessions because they come directly from forces which are most kind of yoga. Feel his mind with doubt. I cannot do this yoga. And then he has a very beautiful remedy. 
Very say during such moments of doubt and despair, you must tell yourself that the Divine has called me to the path. And I am a child of the Divine Mother. I cannot fail. This is the thing to remember, to remind oneself. But all these three levels of difficulty, the individual, the collective, and those which come from special forces which deny the yoga, and these forces concentrate strangely around those individuals and those collectivities which where the yajna is going on. It's a very ancient knowledge, Shri writes in one of the letters to Nirodha. It's a very ancient knowledge that wherever the yajna is going on, yajna is a collective uh, kind of work or a collective sacrifice to the divine. It's in many deeper levels of meaning, but we're not going to that. But it's where the life of the individual and the collectivity is being offered at the altar of the divine for the growth of the divine in, in us. So he says that wherever the yajna is going on, there are all kinds of forces which come to disturb and destroy the process. It's a very interesting vision of Chakrapalaji. This vision is in 1984, if I remember correctly. 84 and 88. It's there in visions of Chakrapala. And you see that the whole collectivity is gathered around the Samadhi and in a state of aspiration. And you see in each one a little point of light which is blowing into a flame and fire. Now in collective yoga, all these flames unite and become a giant That's what they're meant to become. Then suddenly he sees that a great Asuric being enters the ashram. Laughs and as he laughs, he throws out smoke. It's a vision, it's not just a metaphor. He sees that he throws out smoke, and this moment, of course, people who experience that restlessness, doubt, depression, etc., goes into the atmosphere, begins to smaller the flames, and he sees that slowly, 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 most of the flames get covered with this thick smoke. And he laughs, and Few points of light are only seen. And then he sees something very interesting. This Ashwara that wants to rush towards the Samadhi, obviously with an intent to destroy because Siddhya Nivedi, Mother has spoken about this Samadhi in the Ashwara Siddhya Nivedi, it is the altar, secret altar. And he rushes to that, and as he wants to take one step forward, a pure white light comes down from above and he is. Chakrapalaji is called this vision dissolution of an asura. And he is dissolved, and then he sees Mother and Shirdindo about the Samadhi and the beautiful music and all the shower of grace and light and slowly all the flames lit up again. You cannot uh, kill the psychic flame, it's covered. So it once again comes out into the open and unites and it becomes a complete. So this is something which goes on in the occult unseen worlds. And that's one reason why, as the ashram glow, the mother was so particular about the way the ashram inmates dealt with the outside world. It was very difficult to understand their ways. For instance, when people went to see a cinema, there was a time when the whole cinema hall was hired for the ashram inmates to go and see. So, only a few inmates went and saw, but the whole cinema hall was hired. Somebody would think it's an extra release of money. But mother said, my child, you don't know what atmosphere you bring from there. 
And that is why subsequently the playground, the cinema started because you know, there is a natural need, you have a white talent, you want to. But she put it under her umbrella so that whatever happens, happens within a kind of sheltered place, a kind of controlled experiment, you know, put it. And this laboratory, but the difference is the whole universe is laboratory, but these places where the experiment is controlled, <laughs> you know what's happening inside. But there are places where the experiment is in an uncontrolled way. Again, the divine is experimenting. But this was the reason why she created a connectivity and she has spoken a lot about it. So the inward shift is the first necessity. And Shurabhu speaks about it that uh, there are a few things which aid this process of inward shift. Much of what we have been speaking about uh, equanimity and perseverance and patience, endurance, goodwill, etc. etc. help in this process of preparing the inner being for the inward shift. And one of the central processes is sincerity. Of course, integral sincerity is very, very difficult. Probably if one were integral sincere, one would be transformed beings. That's what she says. The fact one is untransformed means we are not sincere. But there is one thing which is easier and that the mother has spoken of as the central sincerity. Shalmin also speaks about it. And central sincerity means at least in the central aim there is no variation. We know what we want. If somebody woke up in the middle of the night and asked us, what do you want? So, what do we say at that point of time? That is the central sincerity. <coughs> Once that is there, the sincerity grows and grows and grows and changes as one goes deeper and deeper. And it's only with the full psychic emergence that one can see very clearly a division within the being of parts that owe allegiance to the light and truth and parts that owe their allegiance to darkness, obscurity, etc. And this is the decisive of battle. Shurika speaks of the decisive ordeal in the battle of this yoga is when the yoga enters the lower vital region. As long as the mind and the heart are engaged, there is no problem. Even the central will can be engaged, there is less problem. But the moment the yoga enters into the lower vital and the subconscious parts, they start a decisive ordeal, the real battle. And there are several things which he has spoken of which are very useful hints when one enters into these regions or the yoga enters into these regions. One lives in those regions, so one doesn't have to enter. The yoga process enters into these regions and uncovers many tendencies, many hidden propensities of nature and they are released into the open, into the naked eye to see. And that's why it's very difficult to understand sometimes why people who take to yoga can seem worse like ordinary men in ordinary life. The reason is ordinary men tackle with ordinary difficulties. <laughs> but people who aspire for uh, a greater than ordinary life have to tackle with greater than ordinary difficulties. It's as simple as that because the whole being, the is open up and this is beautifully Savitri, when, he, when Savitri takes an inward journey and she meets with the triple soul forces and the abyss which pulls her constantly down, down, down and she should cross to that gate. As long as she's on the life surface, she's only tackling with small joy and small grief. The grief that her husband is going to die, the joy that she's so happy with him. But when she begins to go in, inside, 
There are certain levels of difficulties come, especially what should be spoken of as the psychic prana, the uh, vital false soul of desire, it may come up and easily make us feel as if we are being led by the psyche, but actually it is the psyche, the psychic prana, which is like a big veil right in front of the soul. And then she still goes deeper and when she contacts these three madonas and the three uh, corresponding shadows. So this we speak subsequently probably when we speak of the deeper journey. But first of the surface itself is necessary to prepare the being for the inward plunge. And for that the first necessity, Shurinda says is for the outer being to represent something to itself which can seem as divine, which gives to it a shock of contact with the inner that's why we have the tradition of the master, the, the living image, the symbol which makes us the mind, the outer being can come in contact with the inner reality first through these senses. Something it sees and it remembers, it feels like when we see a picture of the mother, we suddenly cry. Now is it emotion? Is it what is it this feeling? Why does the outer being which is you know moving around in all these things suddenly when it sees a picture of the mother begins to cry? Through that picture, it, this certain being comes in contact with the inner reality. For a moment, we don't have to go through the inner process, the outer itself comes in contact and begins to seek, seek the true, the good, the beautiful. So all this helps in the inward shift. The second thing which Shurinda speaks of that the more we can become quiet. And the more we can learn to stand back from nature and its movement, it helps in the inversion. Not to be carried away in all the currents, all the thoughts, suggestions, ideas, opinions, impulses, emotions, passions, desires that arise in us. We learn to stand back and observe nature. And this is one of the, again, great helpful processes for the inversion. The third thing which he speaks of is an inward shift at the three levels of a being. At the level of the mind, at the level of the uh, higher vital or the emotion and at the level of the will. Because these are still the developed parts in human nature. And instead of straight away engaging with the dark and the dangerous, which anyways one would have to one day, we have to first train these parts to help us to go within. Very often when one reads through the whole uh, literature of yoga, one begins to see that I have this defect, this problem and start jumping into a conflict with the difficult parts. And Mother Shri always said this is not the way. The 70% effort should be toward the positive change and 30% towards the engaging with the difficult parts. And even there one has to first start with the small victory and in the small little ways. Otherwise, we may end up launching ourselves into a bitter, bitter struggle with human nature and very often these forces can deceive and take one very, very far away in a kind of battle with the darkness while one is still in the dark. So it's very important that whenever one gets moments uh, of freedom, moments of uh, respite, and doing work, there are ways and means by which one helps in this process of the inward shift. And it is there that the traditional paths begin to show their utility and enter into Shurinda Yoga, the path of the mind, the path of the will and the path of the emotions. The mind can get engaged or help this process of the inner shift 
by picking up one idea or one single thought and concentrating on it. And this idea should be that which represents to us the highest um, sense of the divine. It can be anything, but to us, to each one, it, it varies. Of course, Shurvinda said the highest idea is the one which is given in the omniscient that the divine is in all, all is in the divine, and the divine is all. But one can start with this simple idea that I want the divine, and divine is in us. And one concentrates on this idea as and when one remembers, one pulls the mind back onto that idea, that thought. Now, it is a thought, but a thought which over a period of time begins to become powerful. <laughs> the beautiful line suddenly, a lonely thought becomes omnipotent. Just concentrating on a single thought, a single idea. Swami Vivekananda gives this method in one of his uh, writings where he says, first you pick up an idea and then you concentrate and then you let that idea flow into your nerves and blood and everything become that idea. Now this is how one starts. So picks up in the mind one single thought that that alone I want and nothing else. The problem is that it can take us to very far uh, into a kind of impersonality. Mind can lead us to that and beyond the point it becomes very difficult for the mind. It can get lost into an abstraction, an abstract reality. So along with this movement of the mind there should be also a movement of the heart which the mother says is the central movement because all central movements start from the heart. In one of her very powerful writings she says it is the heart that has wings and not the head. So, though even the head is not the way people understand that Jnana Yoga is reading books and writing books. Jnana Yoga is not about reading books and writing scholarly books with hundred references and uh, becoming a Pandit. One may be a Pandit like Ravana and yet be very far from Jnana. Jnana is to live with the idea of the one and to discover that oneness which is behind all things. So this is the way of the mind and then the way of the heart where you concentrate on the one as a being and not just as an impersonal reality. So he becomes a being with whom we can relate in various ways. And Shukran uh, and the mother, they have spoken a great deal. Essentially, all the emotions in life, the crux of bhakti or devotion, all the emotions and the various um, things joy that these emotions see in the various relationships of life should be turned towards the divine. For instance, there is something I seek in my father, maybe someone who can nurture me and protect me and uh, you know be a nourisher to me, someone whom I can look up to. Well, how about divine is father? Then the indulgent love of the mother. Mother is who somebody who indulges. Even if the child goes and dirties himself, uh, you can go to the mother, she may give you a uh, little scolding, but nevertheless he is scrubbing because you know, that's what mothers are made of. Uh, all human relations are basically a shadowy reflection of that truth. Uh, they should be, they are not, it's very unfortunate, but it's very natural, even at the level of animal, there is a motherly instinct to first think of the child and then about oneself. Mothers do that. So the divine, when we approach him as mother, so Shrivinda says, the indulgent love of the divine is the mother. And then he says something very beautiful. He says, and the divine mother likes it. 
very interesting. She likes that the child soul goes to her in his spirit and peace and asks her. Some people say, should we ask for a personal problem? Why not? When we treat her as the mother, and then the beauty that in this yoga, she comes to us as mother more than anything else. So to the mother we can go unashamed, because mother knows us right from we were in the womb. She knows what this child is capable of, she knows what he does, she knows all the habits of nature more than the child himself. And of course it's very good to be an obedient child of the mother, but even when we are not, her love always goes out with her, with us. Uh, and I remember a very touching moment, there are so many touching instances for the mother, but one that is not published, but uh, someone told me that uh, this was a boy who studied in the center of education and uh, he took to drugs and became a very, very difficult child in every way, very sensible. Uh, in the center of education, everything else is acceptable, but drugs are a bit too much. So he was turned out of the uh, center of education and obviously the ashram. So when he went to the mother, the mother told him, uh, my child, remember only one thing. I was all ears. The story was related to me by the child's father and there was a background to why he related the story. So she said, my child, remember only one thing. You must go out, but remember the mother loves you. I heard it, I have tears in my eyes in this moment. I mean, one can imagine. And now, why he was recounting to me this story that when this boy went out, he obviously his nature took him to the wildest possible situations. And at the age of 40, he contracted malignancy and he was in a drug rehab center. So his malignancy actually came as a kind of tone that he's getting off those drugs which were totally throwing him into the lower vital worlds. Uh, when his father went to him, this boy said, you know, Dad, what saved me and what carried me through this journey? Those words of the mother. Remember, the mother loves you. Now this small thing that to go to her as a mother, only mother can love the child irrespective of what the child all other relationships have some kind of a conditional thing, but mother does the child unconditionally. So to relate, relate with the divine as mother, whom we go as we approach the mother, to relate with the divine as playmate, the class of the hand of the playmate and the friend, to relate with the divine as master, to become the servant and slave, instead of serving this or that hundred people, why not serve the divine? Here again is a very interesting, uh, humorous anecdote of someone who was in dining room carrying a lot of uh, heavy uh, load on his head, a lot of vessels, and another person mockingly remarked, Oh, you look like a coolie. Coolie in India, you know, they carry luggage, but it's not something very nice, a menial job. So he turned and smiled and said, Yes, her coolie. <laughs> Double implication. So her coolie. Her Kuli is her Kuli, who can do impossible tasks. You know, he was given the seven difficult tasks, impossible tasks. And he does it because he is her Kuli. So to become his slave and servant, there is joy of relating with the divine like that. Then there is, uh, of course, the student speaks of the difference between the servant and slave. It is very interesting because one of his efforts is when we say, 
God's servant is something, but God's slave is greater. So, what is the difference between servant and slave? Servant is bound to the master through certain conditions. There is a wage which he gets at the end of his labor. And there are certain hours when he is supposed to serve God. But slave, the contract is for life. <laughs> he cannot put conditions. And naturally, wherever the master goes, he likes to carry the slave. Because slave is someone whom he can always, even in obedient, he wants nothing, he expects nothing. What the master gives, he takes it with joy. Of course, it's understood to have a divine as master, what a master. And only his grace can accept such imperfect human beings as us as his servant and slave. So this is another kind of relation. Then it speaks of the divine is teacher. He alone is the teacher. And whatever we need to learn, we can turn to him. He will develop in us the capacity, the faculties, the necessary knowledge. Everything can be developed if we really turn to him as a teacher. And of course he says divine, the rapturous love of divine, the paramour and the beloved. If you can really hold him always in the heart as the one whom we only love. So when this is spoken, many people start to shrink. My God, this is very difficult. What it really means something very interesting. It is narrated in a small little conversation between uh, Draupadi and Savitri. It is said that they went to heaven and met with each other. Now, Savitri is known for her one-pointed devotedness to her husband, so much so that she conquered it from death. Draupadi is another one of the five great Indian women whom they say that if you take their name in the morning, it fills your being with beautiful feelings is Draupadi and Draupadi had five husbands. Now how can you have such a combination? So Savitri asked Draupadi, why is it that you are also regarded as sacred? See, the music chuckles, yes, of course. Well, you don't know the secret? He said, how can you? You had five husbands, you love five persons. He said, I love only one. He said, that you were partial. Because it's not fair to have five husbands and love only one. Then you are partial. So again you are doing something which is not right. And uh, she adds that I have heard that you are partial to Arjuna. So it is right after all. She says, no, no, that's not right. She says, then whom did you love the most? Was it Yudhisthira? No. Bhima? No. Oh, must be the beautiful, handsome Nakul? No, not at all. Oh, the wise Sandy? No. Whom did you love? The sixth one? She says, all my life I had only Krishna in my heart. And it's such a beautiful story which shows us that we can, and this is an aphorism of Shri this world was created to commit adultery with God. And when Mother was asked to comment on this aphorism, she says, this is a very unusual comment. Normally, you know, one would take it as a metaphor and give all. She says, this is a perfect example of how Shri with his humor, breaks all these moral notions. To love the divine only as the paramour and beloved, even while we are engaged in this world of many fold appearances. So these are the ways of the bhakta by which the emotions begin to turn Godward instead of being engaged on life surfaces. And one sign of this engagement is when Ananda begins to flow into our being. Just as when the mind begins to turn toward the divine, a great light and truth begins to grow upon us. The sign of emotions being turned toward the divine, and more importantly, the divine accepting the sacrifice, because it's a two-way process, is that 
all our emotions begin to mirror the secret joy. So wherever joy is missing, of course for the vital joy is something deeper. We have to look inside and see what is not consecrated, which emotion is not yet done towards the joy. Then the third process he speaks of is the will. Now this is the whole path of karma. All of it specifically, the mother said, karma yoga specifically is so important for our will. And karma is where we work and throw our energies out into the world. That's what karma is. Any energy thrown out into the world is a karma. And this energy, instead of reaching out for surface gains, if we can put it as an offering, and it can be any act, Shirinda takes it in great detail that even the act of eating and drinking and the most mechanical and automatic <laughs> So someone asked Shri or the mother, you know, people had a habit of probing in detail. So when Shri writes even our most automatic movements, such as having and getting and eliminating, now you know you don't need anything more clear, but still somebody asked, when you are in the bathroom, can you remember the divine? Can you offer it to the divine? <laughs> they have to say, yes, why not? Every activity. And we have this beautiful example of Udhara. That you know, we often think Karma Yoga means very big things, giving a nice lecture and holding the active to the audience. It's not that every activity. When Udhara was asked by the mother, that, uh, he asked the mother, Mother, how am I progressing? She said, well, yes, but you could. Is better. So he, you know, his place fell and he asked, Mother, what is missing? What more can I do? So she asked him so beautifully, what do you do in the morning when you wake up? So he didn't know, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? So, you know, he said, well, I go to the bathroom. And what do you do there? I brush my teeth. How do you brush your teeth? So, it speaks of this movement. Because he thinks Mother is perfection, so she must be meaning whether you brush it like this or like this. With an Indian toothpaste or with an American toothpaste, what is it that you do? So he very intently is trying to tell her, so, this is not the way. So what is the way, mother? When you brush your teeth, remember I am with you. And you are brushing for me. Now imagine if we start doing that with our bath, with our dressing up, with everything that I am doing it for her. How how much our life will be changed? Now these are the small little karma of everyday life. And in the beginning it's necessary sometimes to concentrate a moment as an offering. Later on it becomes a natural movement within us. Then it becomes a background consciousness. So that whatever action we are doing outside, something within us is concentrated and invoking the divine. And for this offering sometimes, as well as for remembering the divine, it's very helpful the help of a mantra, a word, a name, a japa, something which represents to us the divine reality. And taking his name, we, we take whatever we take. And what we can offer to the divine, what is the best gift? Well, there's a very beautiful phrase in the Gita, and she speaks about it greatly. A leaf, a flower, a drop of water, half a fruit, everything that we offer to the divine, Divine receives and enjoys it. What a beautiful thing. With everything. We may think it's a casual movement. That I have taken a leaf or you know, we eat something and you know, take it that what is there in Ashram they keep those devotion <laughs> Now of course
course, it can be very mechanical movement, we pick up and eat it. It can be ritualistic, but it can be very really deep movement. If you pick it up every day morning, instead of going to the doctor and asking for vitamin E, vitamin A, vitamin B, vitamin C, D, E, these are the vitamins they have discovered, I think. A, B, C, D, E. But what is missing is vitamin F. So vitamin F is faith. So, <laughs> so I always tell and there was a little joke in the dispensary when I asked uh, the dispensary people to one of the patients said, please collect vitamin F from the counter and all of them keep running, this is not available sir, you never ordered it. So I said, go and ask the doctors. So they went and asked the doctors and nobody could say what this vitamin F is. Whereas this is the vitamin you need to take. I can just share a very personal note I do it every day in the morning and afternoon when I go to the ashram and the samadhi. There are all kinds of problems come up. Sometimes it's knee pain, sometimes it's sweetness in the blood and all things that doctor give names. So pick up a tulsi leaf and say, Mother, this is my vitamin, this is my medicine, this is the alpha-shark. Everything you take it. I know people in home it has worked wonders. I'm not saying prescribing it as a medicine because it doesn't work when you do it thinking if it works, somebody told me that it doesn't work like that. That's the beauty of this. There has to be a spontaneous inner movement that this is an offering. Then when we do it, of course, even medicine we should take as offering. In the ancient times, even they were prepared in the spirit of offering. There's a very touching instance in the Ramayana when uh, Lakshmana is you know, hit by one of those deadly arrows and he's in coma and he will die if something special is not given to him by morning. So one of the Vaidyas from Ravana's side comes and Hanuman goes and you know somehow does the impossible and brings the Sanjeevni Bhuti. So when he brings um, Sukriya who is waiting, you know there are people who wait for the last moment and they rush up and want to prove that I am the great one. So he rushes and wants to give this Bhuti, this medicine to Lakshmana is wife, so the great and wise Vaidya doctor says, wait, it won't work like this. So now what is required? He has gone and got it. He says, invoke the spirit of healing. Invoke the divine. Then it will have its magical properties. So they sit, concentrate and invoke it. And then when it is taken, the idea is everything should be linked to the divine. Whether we take medicine, whether we take food, whether we walk, whether we drive, whether we sit, whether we go to the bathroom, if all this can be turned into an offering with only one joy, the joy of giving ourselves to the divine rather than anything else that we may get out of it, then the will can become ready to become one-pointed and this one-pointedness of the mind and thoughts, one-pointedness of the heart and feelings, one-pointedness of the will all these activities become like a pointed laser to pierce through the veil of the inner being. This is the inward shift which is uh, in one of the crucial movements of yoga. So we can read something about it and speak of it in more detail subsequently. <coughs> Thank you.
the soul may attempt to achieve this contact, the inner contact with the divine reality, mainly through the thinking mind as intermediary and instrument. These passages, some of them which I am reading to read this now, are basically from the uh, light divine in the chapter on total transformation. This of course is a small booklet. Through the thinking mind as intermediary and instrument, it puts a psychic impression on the intellect and the larger mind of insight and intuitional intelligence and turns them in that direction. At its highest, the thinking mind is drawn always towards the impersonal. In its search, it becomes conscious of a spiritual essence, an impersonal reality which expresses itself in all these outward signs and characters, but is more than any formation or manifesting figure. The second thing he speaks of is the first condition of the soul's complete emergence is a direct contact in the surface being with the spiritual reality. Because it comes from that, the psychic element in us turns always towards whatever in phenomenal nature seems to belong to higher reality. It's a very, very interesting subject for study. In phenomenal nature, the soul naturally comes out when there is something which represents the higher reality. So when we look at the mother's picture, it comes out. The mother represents the higher reality. And that's the significance of many of these outer uh, things which are visible symbols. Because these symbols carry their power and they evoke the soul from inside. Whereas there are other symbols or other things from where the soul withdraws inside. Because it comes from that, the psychic element in us turns always towards whatever in phenomenal nature seems to belong to higher reality and can be accepted as a sign and character. At first, it seeks this reality to the good, the true, the beautiful. Everything that is true, everything that is good, everything that is beautiful, Satyam, Shivam, Sundara, it naturally turns towards that. And its beauty not, it's part of appearances. Beauty of thought, beauty of feeling, beauty of sensation, beauty of speech. Everything that is beautiful in movement, it turns towards that. Everything that is good and auspicious and helpful in progress, it turns towards that. Everything that represents to itself as something true, it turns towards that. So this is the indispensable. For such an inward change in the direct contact with the reality itself is indispensable since nothing else can so deeply touch the foundations of our being and stir it or cast the nature by stir into a ferment of transmutation. Then the other approach that he speaks of is through the heart. A second approach made by the soul to the direct contact is through the heart. This in its own more grows in rapid way. So those who think that devotion is not a way of yoga, in fact, in the synthesis, Shurabha writes in such beautiful language. I mean, it's really amazing. Those few chapters are, take us so deep into the all-blissful and the all-beautiful. He says, it's the moment close and rapid way because its occult seat is there just behind in the heart center. In close contact with the emotional being in us, it is consequently through the emotions that it can act best at the beginning with its native power, with its living force of complete 
experience. In fact, in one of the places the mother speaks about it, that how there are three approaches to the supramental world. She speaks of the supramental world. She says one is to the intellect. And she says very difficult approach. It takes you to a maze. Second is to the occult processes. She says very dangerous. First is very difficult, the second is very dangerous. Because the occult is a territory where truth is easily mixed with falsehood. And not only mixed, falsehood can come within the mass of truth. And third, she says, through a certain kind of psychic feeling and emotion. This is the interest. <coughs> she speaks about it. Three approaches to the supernatural. Through a certain psychic feeling and emotion. It is through a love and adoration of the all-beautiful and all-blissful, the all-good, the true, the spiritual reality of love that the approach is made. The aesthetic and emotional parts join together to offer the soul, the life, the whole nature to that which they worship. This approach to adoration can get its full power and impetus only when the mind goes beyond the impersonality to the awareness of a supreme personal being. Many people think that the personal side of the divine is only a gate to the impersonality. Shulman is saying it's the other way out. The impersonal is the gate to the supreme person. This is one of the very interesting elements of Shulman's yoga. Of course, there in the yoga of the Gita and in the ancient Christian mysticism, that the Supreme is seen as a person and a being and he goes, this being is beyond the personal and the impersonal. It's very interesting, this being is beyond the personal and the impersonal both. The personal is a representation, the impersonal is which is universal spread out, not like a being. And the being is beyond the personal and the impersonal with whom we can relate. So this is something very interesting and important in Shirdhuna's Yoga. An approach to the will. And then of course he says that what happens when we are close to the mind, we develop into a sage. It's better not to read, otherwise we develop the ego that we are a saint and a sage. And if we develop to the heart, we develop into a saint and a devotee. And an approach to the will. So third is approach to the will. This larger change can be partly attained by adding to the experiences of the heart, a concentration of the pragmatic will which must succeed in carrying with it, for otherwise it cannot be effective, the addition of the dynamic vital part which supports the mental dynamics and is our first instrument of outer action. So what is it that is required? This consecration of the will in works, in works there is a will. That is the motive. Why do I do whatever I do? It may be to get money, go destroy, it may be to get some joy as a reward, it may be to get praise of people, it may be to get a promotion, it may be even subtle rewards to please. So none of those motives, you have to get rid of all ego will. So here he tells us the way. This consecration of the will in works proceeds by gradual elimination of the ego will and its motive power of desire. So one does not work for desire. Whether people praise us or blame us, whether they tell, oh wow, so good, doesn't matter. 
People can say you are the most idiotic man in the world. It doesn't matter. It's what the divine sees as is. A very touching sense of Krishna being. Robin Nixon, um, the British, uh, I think he was a mathematician, if I'm not mistaken, who went to, uh, there's a very beautiful correspondence of Krishna being with Dilip Kumar and he had come and had version of Mother. So there's a kind of link. Now, when Krishna was in the ashram of her guru, his guru, who was a lady, a very simple lady in the north, Mahayashoda, and who was not much educated, not much intellectual. This man is very intelligent, you know, very cultured in his upbringing. So uh, he lived in that ashram, he became a yogi in his own right. He was spoke very highly of him, that he has the seeing intelligence, he was his work. So, when someone came to meet him after many years, that this man has disappeared from England and to some obscure place in North India, let's go and see him. So they found that he went to meet him. He found that he was sitting in the kitchen, and in ancient Indian kitchens, there used to be to clean the kitchen, people used to use mud and sometimes even, you know, cow dung, and you know, you clean the kitchen. After cleaning it with water, you clean it and make the whole. July, it's no more seen nowadays. We have those gas stops, so it used to be a way. Now, this other magician who could really shine and outshine while doing this work. So, this man came to me and said, What? Do you think by doing this you can realize the divine? Christian looked back and said, I don't know, but they who have walked have walked this way. They who have reached and arrived. So this is the path that no other ego wanted but to serve. So here the ego subjects itself to some higher law and finally effaces itself, seems not to exist or exist only to serve a higher power or a higher truth or to offer its will and acts to the divine being as an instrument. This is the way of the works. We can go through this one incident which uh, Rishab Chandra's daughter told me. It's again very interesting incident. Rishab Chandra came from a very, um, very chaste, giant family. You know, they don't even kill a mosquito or an ant. So it's a very puritan kind of atmosphere. And he joined Ashtra. And he was a very intelligent man, very, really intellectual. I mean, he could deliver such beautiful talks. and. Uh, <laughs> Yet he went to the background. Interesting stories about it. Well, one of these stories is that when he came, the first assignment that was given to him is that go and work in the furniture department. Now, you know, an intellectual coming from a rich and good family would find what? what uh, they say, divine, divine is sending me to work in furniture department. What kind of a. They don't even know what my nature is. But he took it in a spirit of surrender, wrote a beautiful letter to the mother. That mother, I will accept whatever you give me. It's so beautiful, with gratitude I accept it. And he wrote the letter to send it to the mother the next day. Early morning, the first assignment comes to him kill the bugs which are in so and so beds. <laughs> How do you kill the bugs when you are a giant? You cannot kill even an ant. So, how to kill the bugs? So, you know, his human mind came into the play. They said she is a French lady, maybe she doesn't understand the Indian sensibilities. So he kept the letter to the mother on the side. 
wrote a letter later to Sri Aurobindo. He would understand after one <laughs> uh, Lord, I have been given this work for birth, but I think uh, maybe the mother doesn't know. I am a giant, and so how can I kill the bugs? And you know, the way to kill the bugs was very crude. Uh, not like today's time, you know, you put hot water and then they come out and kill them in the stone. So, the crudest work you can imagine. So, he got a letter to Sri and sent that letter. Creating a division between the divine and the Shakti. So Shirdhuva writes on the end of time. Whatever work the mother gives you is meant for your progress. Do it in the spirit. So, <laughs> no choice. And you can imagine how self-effacing these people do. It is said, it is again a true story. Mother once told him that reception, you write something about the outer life of Shirdhuva before coming to Pondicherry. Because after Pondicherry, nobody can write about his life, neither inner nor outer. In fact, this hardly not to write. But pre-Pondicherry, she said, there are many inspiring things which, which can benefit people because it's an example for the world. So you write about the outer life. Reception did a lot of research, study, and this beautiful book, now it's published, Shirdhuva is life in it. One of the Really remarkable books. Shows the erudite intellect and the way he could receive the light. He wrote the book after three, four years, or so many years of uh, work and uh, offered it to the mother. Mother was very happy and it was the end of it. Reception. Then mother sent it to press. Now look at the obedience. Sometimes this obedience can go to strange limits. So Nobody noticed, it went to the press, there was no note from the mother, so it was lying there. Now, mother left her body, and then suddenly, you know, while cleaning, they found this book, manuscript, what did they do with it? So, you know, whether to publish it or not. Now they asked researcher, he said, Mother asked me to write it, my work is over. Now, one cannot imagine, you know, putting such a labor, such a beautiful work, and he said, my work is over. I will give it to her. So, the author is denying to take any credit or anything that may come out of the book. Even she could have thought it would be good to the world. Nothing. He said, my work is over, don't ask me. And as far as I know, it is after he left his body that finally the book was published. And what a remarkable book. So, this is the kind of spirit. And one remembers what Krishna Krim said, they will arrive. Close your head.